it is both awesome and awful in the modern sense of the word awful to think about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ awesome because it is the the climax of human history as we look back across uh, the centuries and and it is awful because of the horror that we see there let me mention just a few things uh, that I mentioned to you last month when we began our consideration of the seven sayings or the seven words uh, of Christ on the cross during his agony on the cross it is recorded in the gospel records that our Lord spoke seven times these seven statements are often referred to as the seven words of Christ and throughout Christian history these seven sayings these seven words have been regarded with as being worthy of special attention and consideration Now, last month, we looked at the first word of the cross, which was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. There are three of the seven sayings that are addressed to the Father, the one we looked at last last month, and also the fourth one, the one in the middle, is addressed to the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The last of the sayings is addressed to the Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Luke twenty three forty six. The other four are addressed to other people that are around him there. The one we're looking at this morning, the second saying, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, from Luke twenty three forty three. The next one is, Woman, behold your son, behold your mother, from John 19. And then, I thirst, from John 19. And then it is finished again from John chapter 19. Now last month we considered the first word, Father forgive them for they know not what they do. This morning I would like uh, for us to consider together the second saying on the cross. That is, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now I want to begin by reading from Matthew chapter 27. If you'd like to read along with me. You're welcome to do that. I'm going to read from verse 38. I want to set the setting for our passage, which will be found in Luke 23. But Matthew 27 and verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said... I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And then over in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. Beginning in verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. 
So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And then note these words. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And now our text in Luke chapter 23. And we'll begin in verse 39. Luke chapter 23 and verse 39. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now of all the people that are present at our Lord's crucifixion, no one was closer to him or in a better position to hear his words than this man to whom he speaks in this second word from the cross. Now I want us to look at this passage under three headings. First, to consider the circumstances. Then the three people that are involved. And then finally the lessons that we can learn. So first of all, consider with me the circumstances. We know that there were at least three crosses at Golgotha because we're told in all four gospel records. We just read it uh, from Matthew and Mark. We uh, know that all four gospel records tell us that Christ was crucified between two criminals. One on his right and one on his left. Now, make no mistake about this. Every detail of what happens to Jesus and all of the circumstances surrounding the crucifixion are according to plan. They are in fulfillment of Scripture. Before these events begin to unfold, our, uh, Jesus, as he institutes the Lord's Supper, speaks these words in Luke chapter 22 and verse 22. Where our Lord says, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. He goes as it has been determined for him. At the day of Pentecost, 50 days after his resurrection in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to the people there. And he says these words found in Acts chapter 2 verses 22 and 23. Acts 22, excuse me, two, uh, ver, chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan And foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter says, according to the definite plan of God, according to the foreknowledge of God, everything that happens to our Lord Jesus Christ in his crucifixion, according to the plan of God, according to the will of God. Over in Acts chapter 4, in verses 24 
through 28. It says, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said. Now, this is a situation where the disciples are praying. And this is what they say to God concerning the crucifixion in their prayer to God. They say, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of, your, of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In their prayer, they say, to do whatever your hand has predestined. That is, God carefully with his own hand directing all of the details, all of the events and all these circumstances that surround our Lord and his dying on the cross. They pray to do whatever your plan has Predestined Everything according to God's careful plan. Nothing happening by chance. Nothing happening by accident. Well, why does this matter to us when we think about this second word from the cross? Well, it matters because we have before us circumstances that have been carefully orchestrated by the hand of God for our benefit and for our instruction. And there's much for us to learn here uh, in this passage in Luke chapter 23. Note that Christ hanging on the cross between two thieves is in fulfillment of ancient prophecy about him. In Isaiah 53, 12, the prophet Isaiah said hundreds of years before, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Now in the broadest cosmic universal sense, Jesus was numbered with the transgressors when he identified with his people who were sinners. And he was numbered with the transgressors when he took all the sins of all of his people from Adam to the very last Christian who will ever live. And when he promised to do whatever had to be done to make that sin right. When he made those promises, he was numbering himself with the transgressors. But here at the cross, God has given us a picture of exactly what Jesus is doing. Being counted as one of the evil ones. Being treated by God and man as a despised transgressor. If you want to understand what Jesus is doing, look at him as he hangs between these two evildoers. He is one of them. He is numbered with them. Now what about these two men that are being crucified with our Lord? If you look at our text in Luke chapter 23, you'll see that in verse 32... That they are called criminals, two others who were criminals. And then in verse 33 again, they're called near the end of the verse, the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And then in verse 39, one of the criminals uh, says, now this word criminal uh, is literally a word that means evildoer. 
I think in the old King James Version, it's translated malefactor. A benefactor is a person that does good things. And a malefactor is one who does evil things. And that's our word. These men are evildoers. In the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, they are called robbers. But that word robber does not mean the kind of robber that sneaks around and steals. This word robber means someone who is a brigand, who is a highway robber, a robber who attacks you and without any hesitation kill you in order to take your property. It is the same word, excuse me. <clears throat> it is the same word from the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke ten thirty, where Jesus uh, says to them, a man was going down for Jer- from Jerusalem to Jericho And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And that is what these men are. We know that the Romans did not crucify people who were petty thieves. These men are vicious, murderous men. We know a few other things about them. They were almost certainly members of the gang of of criminals that was led by Barabbas. Matthew 27, 16 tells us that the Roman authorities were were holding, quote, a notorious prisoner. The word notorious means a marked man, uh, someone who is infamous, widely known, kind of like our FBI's most wanted list, Barabbas and his men. We know that our Lord on the cross is on the cross in the place of another man who was supposed to be hanging there. Barabbas was that man, but Barabbas has been released by Pilate. The three crosses were intended for Barabbas and his two partners in crime. In John eighteen forty, we read, They cried out, Not this man, that is, don't give us Jesus, but Barabbas. And then John makes this comment. Now, Barabbas was a robber, which is our same word. But there's even more to this word robber. Josephus, the Jewish historian from this time period, uses this word robber whenever he refers to a group of revolutionaries who were part of a militant Jewish movement that sought to overthrow the Roman occupiers by force. Now, here in our text, we see some indications of this. Look at uh, chapter 23, verse 19. Describing Barabbas, it says, A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. And then again in uh, verse 25. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. And so we see that this man, Barabbas, and his, his partners in crime are rebels. They are companions in insurrection. They are people that have caused riot and those kind of things. Do you know what we would call Barabbas and his two cohorts today? We would call him terrorist. That is the kind of people that we're talking about. Violent, notorious men, highway robbers murderers, political terrorists. Now note the change that happens to one of these two men. Matthew and Mark comment about them when there was no difference at all between them. We read earlier in Matthew 27, the robbers who were crucified with him 
also reviled him in the same way. In Mark 15, those who were crucified him also, who were crucified with him, also reviled him. These two evil men are of one mind when it comes to Jesus who claims to be the Christ. But now Luke takes up the account. Probably several hours have passed. The first man continues to hurl insults at our Lord. In verse 39, it says that one of the criminals railed at him. The word translated railed is the Greek word from which we get our English word blaspheme. One of the criminals goes on and on blaspheming our Lord Jesus Christ. Note his words in verse 39. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other thief now speaks in a very different way. First, he speaks to the other thief in verse 40 and 41. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then to Jesus in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, of course, responds with this second word from the Christ. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. These are the circumstances here surrounding these words. Now, secondly, let's look at these three people that are involved. I want us to try to understand the significance of this second word from the cross by looking at these three uh, people that are involved in this scene, the impenitent thief, the penitent thief, and then our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, first, the impenitent thief. This man is an example of a person who has knowledge of religious things but has no saving faith or repentance. Notice with me some of the religious ideas that this man has. He says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This man knows about the Christ and has expectations concerning what the Christ would do. He is not what we would call today an unchurched person. This man believes that the Messiah will come to save and that he will be able to save. If you are the Christ, then save us, he says, because he knows that Israel's Messiah will be a Savior and a Deliverer. He knows that many think that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus claims to be the Christ. His blasphemy is centered around mocking the claims of Jesus. He calls upon him for help. Now, of course, he would want help. He has never been in such a desperate situation as he finds himself now. His life of evil has come to this final point of crisis. Who knows what kind of terrifying circumstances he may have been in in the past and his violent life as a thief and a mur murderer and a terrorist against Rome. But never has he been in a place like this, hanging in agony on a cross, no hope of escape, certain death just a few hours away. If ever a person will call upon God, it will be at such a time as this. This man is asking for a miracle. It would be a miracle indeed if these three men were delivered from the cross and from the nails that hold them there and were suddenly set free. 
But, one, but note one thing that is of absolute importance for us to understand. This man wants to be saved from the horrible place that his sin has brought him, but he does not want to be saved from sin. In this, this man is like the great mass of humanity who will never be saved. Multitudes of people want to be saved from sin's consequences. Saved from the guilt of sin. Saved from the the pangs of conscience. And from the judgment that they fear may be ahead. But that is a very different thing from wanting to be saved from our sins. This man wants to make Jesus, who is the king of the Jews and the king of the world, to be his servant to do for him what he wants and, and what he needs. Which in this moment, is to escape from the horrible events of this day and his present condition hanging on a cross. This man wants God's aid without repentance. Now, from time to time when there are public tragedies, people start to ask questions about God. They say things like, where was God? How could God let this happen? Why doesn't God do something? Do you ever hear questions like that? I even heard people talking that way uh, on the news channels back with some recent events that were terrible uh, that have happened. People want God to intervene at times and places that suit them. But they want God to stay out of sight and out of the way and not interfere with their life and their plans the rest of the time. Dear ones, this is not the way that Christians think. Are we ever tempted to think like that? To think about God when there's a great need, but not so much at other times? Are we really different from this man hanging on a cross? I hope by the grace of God that we are. Now, this man's blasphemy is not just his mocking and reviling. It is blasphemous to think about God as if he was the servant of men. He will be worshipped as king of kings and Lord of lords. Now, in contrast to this man, consider the penitent thief. In these very few words that are recorded, we have a remarkable, a remarkably thorough summary of the gospel. Here there is a rebuke, which is an indication of this man's repentance. Our text says that the other rebuked him. Clearly, this man has had something profound happen to his mind and to his thinking. After initially joining with his companion in his mocking and his rebukes and his insults directed towards Jesus, now he instead rebukes his friend. At some point, this man has become silent. He is mocking no more. Now, it may have been the prayer of Jesus for the forgiveness of his persecutors that caused him to become silent. Did Christ's prayer set this man to thinking that what he needs more than anything else is the forgiveness of his sins? This much is clear. This man has turned and gone a different way. This man has had a change of heart. Repentance has come to this man. Now, note three incredible things that he says as he rebukes his friend. Three important gospel principles that are on his mind as he speaks. First, he speaks about the fear of the Lord. 
He says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of, con of condemnation? No doubt this man has known fear, fear of violent death, fear of being captured. He had many things to fear. But the fear of God was not one of them. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, Paul is very clear that none is righteous, no one understands, no one does good. And to make sure that we don't misunderstand, he twice adds the words, not even one. And then to sum up what he has said about the utter sinfulness of all men apart from the grace of God, he concludes by putting his finger right on the heart of the problem. In Romans 3.18, he says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. The wisest man that ever lived tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And this man has had the fear of the Lord settle upon his thinking, and now he rebukes his friend. We are under the same sentence as this man. Death and judgment are at hand. Don't you fear the thought of facing God? Dear ones, this is powerful evidence that this man is being drawn to grace and to salvation because there is no fear of God except through the grace of God working in our hearts. Secondly, this man confesses his sins. Our text says, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This is confession of his sin. Our sin, sentence of, con, of condemnation is just. We indeed justly, our text says, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This thief has come to realize that his circumstances are just and he does not want justice, justice is the problem. It is justice that has brought him to the cross. He confesses that it is just and his due reward to be there. But this man does not want justice. He wants mercy and he wants forgiveness. And all he can do is ask for Jesus to have mercy and to remember him. You know, sometimes it makes me draw up when I hear people complain about things not being fair. Um, not getting my rights, not having what I deserve. Dear ones, I hope that you would never want and ask for justice from God. I don't want justice from God. If God gives me justice, then I will be lost forever. What I want from God is mercy and not justice. And this man has begun to see that if we get what we deserve, we will be under a just sentence of condemnation forever, which is the due reward for our deeds. And then thirdly, note that he has come to some understanding about Jesus. He says in our text again, but this man has done nothing wrong. In contrast to himself and, and to his friend who deserve to be exactly where they are, this thief knows that Jesus is an innocent man. Jesus is an innocent victim. He is not there on account of his own sin. But it is the wickedness of others that have put him on the cross. And so in his rebuke to his friend, he says, We are the guilty ones, but he is the innocent one. This man has done nothing wrong. Believers in the Lord Jesus know that it was not his sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. 
but that he was there because of our transgressions. That is a big part of what it means to believe in Jesus. And this is the testimony of this dying man. Jesus is the just one here dying on a cross. We are seeing right before our eyes the first fulfillment of Jesus' words from John 12, 32. In John 12, 32, our Lord says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And here is the Lord Jesus Christ, still on the cross. And what is happening here at Calvary with this man in this, in this point of his deep, deep need is he's being drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we see three gospel principles in this rebuke. A right kind of awareness of God, the fear of the Lord. An understanding of the need to be saved, a sentence of condemnation. And hope in the sinless Christ. This man has done nothing wrong. Now consider the last words of the penitent thief, his request that is directed towards Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's really no explanation for these words other than a powerful operation of the Spirit of God in this man's heart and mind. On this very day, any hope that Jesus would be king and have a kingdom is being crushed. His disciples are in panic and disarray. Things certainly have not worked out the way that they expected. What kind of king can this man be? This man who is almost dead hanging on a Roman cross. There are only two possible explanations for what has happened. Either Jesus is no king at all, or he is in the process of bringing about a kingdom that is very different from the kingdoms of this world. But this man is going to believe that this innocent Jesus is the Christ. He believes that Jesus will yet have a kingdom. He believes that the cross is not the end of the story for God's Messiah. And in faith, he asks the most simple thing. Remember me when the day comes that you enter your kingdom. Dear ones, I hope that you all know that the prayer of faith is really the most simple thing. We don't have to say special words. There are no secret formulas. We don't have to be eloquent. We don't have to use any fancy terms. We don't have to say the right things. The prayer of faith can be as simple as, remember me or save me. We don't know how much this man knew about Jesus. We don't know how much he understood about the Messiah and God's kingdom. We do know that he knew some things, and we do, but we do know this. He knows enough to, in his time of need, cry out to Jesus as his only hope. That is all that any person seeking Christ can do. Now consider with me the response that Jesus has in this second word from the cross. Verse 43 says, And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He begins by saying, truly I say to you. The, the word truly is the word amen. It means something that is firm or certain or faithful or true or reliable. Jesus is saying, you can count on what I am saying to you. It is sure and it is certain. And then what he tells this man is this. Today 
you will be with me in paradise. Jesus assures this man that his prayer has been heard and will be answered that very day. The two of them will be dead soon. And this man will be with Christ in paradise. Now, there are some lessons for us in these words. First, when a person believes he is saved immediately, this man was certain for glory the moment he believed. You may remember the words of the old hymn, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Or in the hymn we just sang uh, just a few minutes ago, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Secondly, when, when Christians die, they go to be with Christ. Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And again in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. My desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul knows that when we die, we do not go into a a period of sleep. We enter into conscious existence in the presence of Christ and his people. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, you may have been taught or you may have heard somewhere that after his death, Jesus enters into hell to suffer and to battle the forces of darkness until his resurrection from the dead. Uh, Many people teach that. But this is not the testimony of Scripture. The Lord Jesus, a true man, in the incarnation, he is human in every way, lived and died like every other human being, but without sin. He was born just like you and I were born. He lived in this world with all of its challenges and, the, and all of the necessity of, of life, just like what we face uh, in our life every day. It was exactly the same for him. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And his being like us in every way includes his death experience. He was a real man experiencing real human death and going through the experience of passing from this life and into the state that follows just like every other person. And that is why, Christian, when you are approaching your death, Our Lord Jesus Christ is a faithful and tender and compassionate high priest who is a present help to you in your dying hour because he has already walked through those dark waters himself and he knows exactly what you feel and what you experience. His death experience parallels that of the thief. They both will enter glory when they die and and there they will be together. Now consider with me just a few lessons that we can learn from this passage. What lessons can we learn from the two thieves on the cross and this second word of Christ from the cross? Well, the first one is this. We learn that salvation is by grace and not by works. This picture of salvation given to us by the careful providence of God tells us that being in paradise with God is not based on good works. This is what Jesus is preaching to us from the cross. This man will never attend a church service. 
He will never be baptized. He will never join a local church. He will never take the Lord's Supper, as we're about to do in just a few moments. All of these are wonderful and important things, but this man will do none of them. This man's salvation tells us plainly that none of these things can save. It is the mercy of God in Christ that saves sinners. What explanation can be given for the difference that we see in these two men that that started out uh, this day exactly the same? How can this thief believe in Jesus who at at that very moment is the picture of failure and defeat as he hangs there on a cross? Well, there's only one explanation for these things. It is the powerful grace of God giving this man a new heart and through the new birth giving him eyes to see the kingdom of God and causing him to enter into the kingdom of God. We learn that salvation is by grace and not by works. Secondly, Christ will save any that call upon him in faith. This thief dispels the idea that any person can be too evil or too hard to be saved. This man is a hardened criminal, a murderer, a rioter, a rebel. And just as much as his absence of good works was no obstacle to his salvation, his mountain of evil works is no obstacle either. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. The word of Christ is, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In John's gospel, Christ says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus will save any one, anyone that calls out to him. And then third, I want to warn you about something that this passage does not teach. Something that this ta- passage does not teach. This thief does not teach us that we can wait to the very end of our life to be saved. Because we are sinful, because we do not honestly think about such things, many have seized on this, quote, deathbed experience with the idea that they can postpone dealing with sin and salvation to some later day. You may be familiar with the quote attributed to Augustine. The quote is this. There is one case of deathbed repentance recorded, the penitent thief, that no one should despair, and only one that no one should presume. Dear ones, the testimony of Scripture is clear, and the danger is real. There is only one message about this in the Bible. The message is repent and believe now. Listen to Proverbs chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you. And then listen to these words from Proverbs chapter 1. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Does that sound like to you it is, also, it is okay to wait to the very end, to wait and wait and wait and ignore the gospel? 
and then think that somehow you will trust Christ and be saved. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The implication of those words is that there are times when the Lord is near. There are times when the Lord can be found. But the implication is on the reverse hand is there are times when the Lord is not near and when the Lord cannot be found. That is why the scriptures appeal to us in this way. In Hebrews chapter 3 verse 7, we read today, If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. A few verses down in verse 13, we read, Exhort one another every day as long as 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 it is called today, that none of you may be hardened. And then a couple of verses down in verse 15, again, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And then just a few verses later in chapter 4, verse 7, again, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Why these warnings? Because the day of your choosing may not be a day when God is speaking to you. It is when you hear his voice that you must respond to Christ. Also consider the example of the other thief. Though he was dying, and he was in the most desperate circumstances that can be imagined, he does not repent, and he does not seek forgiveness from God. There's no guarantee that in your closing years or days or hours that you will have any heart, any mind that it wants to turn itself to salvation and to Christ. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Now, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, please keep in mind this second word from the cross. This body and blood that we remember as we take the elements was broken for this reason, that we might be with Jesus in paradise. He suffered to bring many sons to glory, Hebrews 2.10 tells us. That is what we believe and that is what we celebrate when we come to the table. We take these elements and we remember the blood and the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. He did this awful thing that he does for our behalf that we might be with him. John talks about that Christ has a desire that someday his people will all be with him and they will see the glory that he has before the world began. And so we celebrate it as we come to the Lord's table this morning.